Hello, this is Tom, the executive producer for the Pizza and Enzo show. Today's episode has Steve Whitmire, the owner and proprietor of Brasstown Beef. And we are joined by Doug the Food Guy, which is always exciting. Enjoy. You ready? I'm ready if you're ready. All right. Well, good morning, Tom. How are you today? I'm having an awesome so far morning. I want you to meet a good friend of mine, Steve Whitmire. Steve, how are you doing this morning? Well, I'm doing great, too. We've been, gosh, we've known each other for a long time now, haven't we? Absolutely. So where are you at today? I am um, two and a half miles from downtown Brasstown, North Carolina, population 50. I've been up and actually toured your farm up there, Ranch, and Brasstown beef is pretty special. How long have you been up there in that, that neck of the woods? Well, specifically this farm has been in existence for since 1954. And then there's been a, a Whitmire from over in, in uh, Brevard, North Carolina area, uh, Rosman Brevard since about 1820. So the families, you could say somewhat moved west, maybe 60 miles as the crow flies and about 120 by land. <laughs> wow. And have you been uh, growing cows that whole time? Yeah, I mean, it's always been a working cattle operation. I grew up, I mean, I got a picture on the wall, which I ought to, I could show you upstairs uh, from the, the hometown I was raised in was Franklin, North Carolina. And I've got a the front page of the Franklin Press from, I think, 1960. Well, when was it? Anyway, I was 11 years old, had won a judging contest for showing livestock and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I was raised in this environment i mean period well you're absolutely the closest thing i know to a rancher cowboy you have the hat to prove it uh i've I've been up and seen the cows and you know it's part of this conversation we're having today is about entrepreneurship and being tied to what you do and loving what you do and I, i can just tell you the way you take care of your animals the way you promote your uh beef operation you're not normal you're not what everybody else is doing. I've been Tell called abnormal before. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little in bit fact, about. In fact, I've been called stupid for doing what I do, but I got to <laughs> tell you about the hat. Okay. So I'm going to, this is my pitch. Yeah. Go for I, it. I, I always wear this when it's pouring rain as it was Sunday, cats and dogs in six inches. I've got a, a plastic bonnet that I put on and I got, I'm completely weatherproof. I don't wear sunblock. I don't have to because my ears are covered. My nose is covered and the back of my neck's covered. So I don't understand why everybody doesn't wear a cowboy hat. You know, I mean, it just defies logic. Everybody, you know, anyway, so there's a reason why I wear them. That is very cool. Steve, I've noticed since the onset of uh, the, the video, the, the video show, kind of a streaming video show called uh, Yellowstone that it has that cowboy hats have blown up just absolutely blown up and we have seen down here they have a uh, uh, I don't know wh- where else it is they call it like the Carolina squat where the guys have the trucks where the yeah. back end is down 
and and everybody is wearing cowboy hats. It is so so exciting to see that uh, that idea coming coming back. Well, it makes sense. Mine's practical. I mean, period. I've got you know I, this because I needed to impress you all. I put on my newer hat. Uh, <laughs> it's not my newest hat though. I mean, I got my really nice hat, and then I got this hat, and then I've got th two more below it. They get worn every day, covered with dust and everything else. And those were the previous nice hats. So I keep, you know, I keep bucking them down. Then when, you know, there's a rule, basically after Labor Day, you take the straw hat off and you put the felt hat on. And then on Memorial Day, you take the felt hat off and you start wearing a straw hat. So I need to go ahead and teach you the etiquette. I like it. Yes. I, I will. Yes. Uh, Andrew got me one. Uh, I have a Panama Jack hat now that it's not a cowboy hat, but it's like a Panama Jack looking thing. And. And it is an interesting, the, the reason I would even say that is that I, I have found that it is interesting to have a hat on, I wear hats nine out of 10 hours, uh, like baseball hats. But it's, I noticed that when I walk by and look like who's, what the heck, what is that on that person's head? And it's, it, so it, it, did, did it take a little getting used to, or have you had one on since you like came out of the womb and boom, you got a cowboy hat? Um. I've had one almost all the time. It it is the reactions are more expressive now. Um, I went in to mail something at the Brasstown Post Office, which again, Brasstown is like I said, population fifty. Okay, we're not talking big. We do have our own post office, and the clerk was a new clerk behind the behind the counter, and I mean, she said, "Wow, you really look good. <laughs> <laughs> I like your hat. <laughs> I know I'm getting one now for sure." Uh, <laughs> I, think I wear a lot of hats. I've never had that happen to me before. So where do we sign up? I gotta start wearing. I mean, I, I think they're. I think they're better than a dog was being a chick magnet. If you're looking for that. <laughs> that, is, that is fine. Oh that goodness! Is. All right. Well, we need to get on with what you really called me about. Yeah. Not why I wear a hat. That is awesome, Steve. It's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to to our uh, little show here. The the idea behind the entrepreneur concept really has been since you say, you know, since, since before we were even here, do you find that with, uh, the, with the way that you do your life, has your life been built around the entrepreneurial uh, world? So everything you do is around your business now? Uh, I would say that's yes. I, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of moving parts, but when I was in elementary school, uh, I don't, who knows how this happened? They had a, um, uh, people used to get you to sell magazine, uh, subscriptions. And so, um, I went around and knocked doors as an eight year old and knocked doors and got magazine subscriptions. And I won a record player. Okay. Nobody knows what a record player is now with that, but it was a record player. And so, you know, I learned about meeting people and selling. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a family where we had a cow, a Guernsey cow. My mom, we milked the cow. We made butter, milk, cream, cottage cheese. We grew our own pigs. And so all of that together, as it worked around, but basically the real bottom line on all this thing, Tom, is I needed to figure out how to save the farm. Okay, period. Oh, wow. We got about 1,020 acres and uh, it had been marginally profitable or lost money forever. Um, and then, um, I mean, I've done several entrepreneurial things prior to this, okay, which we're talking about the farm, but we won't get into all those other things. But basically, when I, when I sold those businesses back in 2004 and 2005, 
my dad had met his demise in uh, 1998 as a result of a bull. And so I needed to, my, my siblings were unrelated geographically. It didn't make sense to them to keep the farm. And yet I was not willing to part with it. So I bought out their interests and then Brasstown Beef over time evolved from figuring out how to generate enough additional income from a cattle operation to support keeping the farm forever. So that was the genesis. And so when you look at it that way, then as an entrepreneur, um, I guess you, what you would say is you're kind of like if you were a, 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 a running back in the NFL, you're always running for daylight, okay? So basically you have an idea, you have a concept, you know, and, and you have a plan and then parts of the plan work, parts of the plan don't, and you need to be able to pivot on a dime to be able to say, okay, what can I do differently? So all of this evolved originally from me raising and selling bulls to people and buying their calves back and then shipping those calves to the Midwest and paying the feed bill every two weeks and learning about that end of the business um, and which, which breeds, which combinations were successful. And, but one of the things that in our case, to be specific, that occurred is, as I mentioned, we're actually, we're sort of what I say when people say, well, where are you? And I say, well, where were all the white liquors made and the car thieves are? You mean three states in five minutes, okay? I'm looking out the window at Georgia and I literally can get on a hill and see Tennessee, all right? And so basically we weren't close to cattle markets or places. And so the bulls that weren't good enough by my definition, which I won't bore you with all the cattle definitions, but I will simply say the ones that weren't good enough to sell for breeding stock, you know, for procreation of more calves for somebody else, I had to figure out what to do with them. And so we would, um, when they were 12 months of age, we had finished all of our analysis, a, a lot of technical uh, information that we actually gathered. And we'd actually eat some of them and the meat was really good. And so I thought, hmm, and I don't have anybody to sell these bulls to. Uh, because they aren't good enough, I should say. I don't want to contaminate my reputation with selling somebody a bull that is subpar, doesn't gain weight fast enough, it's not got big enough ribeyes, too much back fat, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that kind of picked my interest. In the meantime, I was learning about growing cattle from having fed them in the Midwest for a number of years because I was buying the calves back from the bulls. So basically, um, I knew Asheville, North Carolina, was very leading edge uh, on the farm to table movement. And so I had a little processing plant nearby and I bought them a vacuum packing machine. They didn't have one. Everything was wrapped in white butcher paper. And I, and you know, nobody literally wants to have, have stamped on it what was supposed to be inside the white butcher paper, but you never knew if it was gonna be a bunch of bone, a bunch of fat, pure meat. You didn't really open, know until you thought it out and you opened it, what, how you were going to cook it. So, okay, you need to see through the bag. And so I bought the vacuum packing machine, had them cut steaks, showed them how they cut them exactly, put them in the back of my pickup truck in a cooler. And I drove to Asheville, which is 110 miles east of here, and started knocking doors, literally. And, um, you know, developed the brand. And, you know, people, well, how'd you come up with Brasstown? Okay, so I'm in Brasstown. There's Brasstown Road. Our address is 1960 Brasstown Road. We got Brasstown Creek that comes by. 
And it wasn't completely a stroke of genius to say, well, hell, why don't we just call it Brasstown B? <laughs> Are you near? Uh, I grew up in Atlanta and always knew of a place called Brasstown Bald. Have you ever? Is that near where you are? Yeah, it's it's out there. To, it's out there eight miles. It's I think isn't it the highest the highest point in uh, Georgia or something? It like is that? exactly. Yeah. So you know, yeah, you can see my farm in the distance from Brasstown Bald, looking that's, the other way. That's cool. So anyway, it all comes together. So basically, I was. I was running for daylight, trying to figure out how to keep this farm in the fat to pass it down. And so one of our monikers is literally when we're selling, when we have our distributors that handle our beef and I go with them and I see their customers, um, you know, the driving force on this whole thing is how to keep the farm in the family. I mean, I've got children and grandkids and while they're not intimately involved in the farm in some ways, they love it. They've gone through other careers and are coming back more and more to the farm, but, but the business wouldn't support um, additional family members. Let me just put it that way, especially when they, you know, they, they both had, both sons had a lot of talent that went beyond, you know, what I do here in certain ways. Now, what I do here is actually pretty complicated to get the quality of meat that we have that has earned us the reputation that it has. Um, we're, you know, we've got a couple of marquees, I would say, for the people that are that are in the, uh, you know, Mount Pleasant, Charleston area. FIG, F-I-G, in Charleston is considered one of the best restaurants. In fact, they they are were a finalist for James Beard as best restaurant in the U.S., and that meant they made it to the top five, and they didn't pick a winner in 2019 and 2020. Yeah. All right. And they didn't even do them in 21 because of the COVID issue. But they, two years in a row, they had already made it to the one of the, the list of the top five restaurants in the U.S. And they, while they're primarily a seafood uh, restaurant, the only beef that they have served now for, gosh, I think it's five years or more, is Brasstown beef. Wow. Uh, and both chefs, uh, the chef owner, yeah, Mike Lotta, and then Jason Stanhope, the yes, executive Jason, chef. Yeah. All right, they're they're friends. I mean, literally. I mean, when I'm in Charleston, I'll have breakfast at Jason's house, and and Chef Lotta, that things the way things work out. You know, he he married a girl that I know from my son, from my son's class, and so forth and so on. So anyway, bottom line is these these business relationships many times develop into friendships, and then. Another marquee or hallmark is Burns Steakhouse in Tampa, Florida. Burns wow. is always in the top five in the U.S., frequently rated number one. And it's a an owner, David Laxer and his wife. It's his father, uh, Burn, and, and his uh, mother, Gertrude, that started Burns from a little deli, and it grew, 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 grew. Um, and so basically they were looking for a grass-fed all-natural product. They had a certain percentage of their customers that were asking for that. And they had looked, they said for five years and hadn't found anything until they, until one of their chefs tasted my meat beef at a, at the Epicurean hotel, which is also owned by the, um, the laxers and some partners. And so basically they tasted it. So here we are, I guess two, maybe three years later, and so they have a list of steaks. If you were to go on their menu and look at their steaks, you'll see maybe 15 or 16 different cuts by ounces 
or the name like a filet or a New York strip, but there's three items on there that say Brasstown beef. We're the only brand that's actually on their menu. Uh, everything else is just a steak. And then um, Red, the steakhouse in, in Miami is rated number one, uh, number one in Miami, number 10 in the U.S. And, and chef owner Peter Bothy, um, we've got three items on his menu by name. Um, and so we'll have, you know, he has certified Angus beef and Brasstown beef. So we, we, uh, you can probably see, I don't know, but there's a fair amount of gray hair on my head now. And, and I will tell you every, every hair on my head has come from making a mistake, usually not more than twice, but it goes back to the road of entrepreneurship when you laid the best plan you can and things don't work out. So then you have to alter your plan. And, um, for those that have the, um, the guts and tenacity, it's a very rewarding, fabulous life to lead, but they need to have uh, life partners that understand risk and they need to understand themselves that nothing, I shouldn't say nothing, but, but in the early stages, a lot of things don't work out the way you think they are, but if you've got the right idea and, and, the, and can think yourself through, how am I gonna change this business? And then on top of that, once you get it all just right, something happens like COVID happens and all of a sudden, and we're 90% restaurant related um, because we, the way we raise our cattle, never in confinement, never any antibiotics or growth promoting hormones. Uh, there aren't very many retail stores that really will offer the meat. It costs too much. Uh, now we've been in Whole Foods for 12 years now. Um, they used to buy the whole animal. Now they just buy the ground beef. Um, we've been in Ingalls, which is a, uh, about a 240 store chain, uh, based in Asheville. Um, and they have our ground beef. We've been with them, gosh, 10 or 12 years. Um, but that's it. And so basically when COVID hit and the restaurants all closed, it was like, are we going to be broke next week? Who are we going to sell our meat to? Um, so that, put a few more gray hairs in there. Um, you know, uh, we were the sole supply, um, of ground beef to, to, I think I, I say sole supply. I don't know that, but I suspect it was based on the volumes that went up tenfold at, um, Ingalls. And then they, whoever else they were buying their ground beef from, uh, we all sold them a lot more because the, the homeowners or people that were cooking at home, it was pretty interesting phenomenon, but it was interesting phenomenon for everybody in the protein business. They bought whole chickens and ground beef. That's what people bought when COVID, when it shut out everything middle last of March, uh, you know, a year ago. So anyway, or two years ago, whatever it's been 18 months. So basically, you know, the road of entrepreneurship uh, is very rewarding. Don't count on being an overnight success. Um, you know, I would say we're an overnight success after 15 years. Right. Like yeah, you know, Steve, I, I got to, that just, I've heard this story many times and I, I always enjoy it. One thing I'd really love for you to talk to our listeners about is your process. I mean, you're not just an, a guy out selling beef. You put more into it than that. The passion, you can see it in your face when you start talking about it. But tell us a little bit about how, what the process is. What, what, what happens? Well, we, we're cattle people first. Um, and 
that sort of educational process helps um, just through a number of connections and so forth. I ended up on the, uh, there's two big cattle organizations in the US. One is called the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And one is called the Beef Improvement Federation. Um, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association involves um, state associations, involves the um, education, PR associated with cattle business and lobbying and things like that. Beef Improvement Federation is predominantly uh, populated with nerds from top universities, animal science departments, from Cornell to UC Davis to Texas A&M and everywhere in between, and breed associations like Angus, uh, Hereford, Charley, Semitol, et cetera. And they, out of the 18 board members, there were six that were always chosen from the industry. And I was one of those six. And then in 20, uh, in 2013 and 2014, I was actually president of the organization. And so if you actually go into the state, if you go, it, let's put it this way, anybody that wants to know how to raise an animal, a, a bovine, um, the guide that's in everybody's on everybody's shelf and the cooperative extension services and, and breed association and everything else is called the beef improvement guide. So as a result of all that exposure and further knowledge about what the genetics involved and then me coupling it together with the fact that Doug, I need you and Tom, when you guys go out to eat and you go into a, a fine restaurant that like we've just named and you eat, for instance, if you go into Aladia's, let's just say in, uh, in either Lexington or in uh, Columbia, they've used our, they've, they've had my beef, gosh, maybe eight years. I mean, a long time. Anyway, if you go in there, you expect to, you're going to pay top dollar and you expect to have a, a wonderful dining experience. It can't be random, which means I can't be random in what I sell them. Wow. And while we do, while we literally win every cutting head to head with every brand, you name it, we beat them flavor head to head. We cost more and we don't use any antibiotics or growth promoting hormones and the cattle are always on grass. So we've got a number of things that we do that make this consistency. So basically putting all those things together led me to being able to make the quality and the consistency of beef that you, the ultimate consumers must have, which means the customers that get it to you, um, of which there's a lot of major distributors, the ones that we have partnered with, they've got to feel comfortable that when they buy our beef to sell to you, that your customer, you are going to be, you and Doug are going to be very happy at that restaurant and say, wow, I want more of that. And so that keeps the whole wheels going around. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I tell you, you, that was a mouthful. That's exactly correct. You could control the DNA of the animal from the bull, as you said, you control the growth of the animal because you're putting it in your pastures, your grass. I've even drank water out of the same cysteines that the, the cows get. I mean, the water is fabulous. Yeah, uh, I can't wait to see that photo. <laughs> <laughs> I may share it with you. And you also have that same animal taken care of and, and you move them from pasture to pasture so they grow and they're, they're not stressed. So yeah. they're enjoying uh, life as best they can. 
all the way through that guy driving the truck that delivers it to the yeah. to the warehouse of the distributor. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. you control every aspect because right. you are that particular about the quality that you're going to exactly um, right. sure me as a consumer gets to enjoy. That's exactly right. Everything about it, food safety, temperature control. Once we once we harvest the animal, and I got to say, look, we're none of us are going to outlive death. Okay, true. So. I want to live the best I can until the day the lights go out. And I want the same thing for my animals. And so that's just the way it works. That being said, and we're going to be wrapping up here real close, but you said something to me one time, and I think it's important to bring it out here. As you're working on the farm, which I know you work on every single day, some of the most enjoyment that you get is leading those animals from pastor A to pastor B. And they just follow you because... They, they either know they you love them or you're going to give them better food. But but you you told me that's some of the most enjoyable you have is moving Absolutely. those animals. Yeah, and I've tried, I probably backed off. I've got three or four more, but I figured I'm afraid I'm going to bore my, because I do the social media, last thing I do every night before I go to bed. And that's, you, you really, I can't. I mean, I know a lot of businesses can't. I can't afford to pay a full-time social media person, I, but you need to do it. It's important. And I've got so many photographs from last week where I needed to move a bunch of cows around. And I took two completely different herds. One had like 40 in it, one had 70. And I led them by myself. You know, unlike Yellowstone, we didn't get 10 cowboys on horses and drive them. What I do is I go into pasture and I call them and they put their heads up. And then many times they'll come running actually. And it's, it's very rewarding. It's actually hilarious because then I took them up through the woods last uh, last week when I was moving them around and you could see they, they would look around and look at each other and they'd say, okay, well, he's never, he's never done wrong by us before. So let's keep going. And here they come. And then when I get to where they can actually see the green grass, it's like, hallelujah, they'll start jumping and kicking their heels up and everything else. And here they go. I mean, I got video of all that. And I just, like I said, I, I'm afraid I'm more and more everybody with these down home on the farm pictures. Um, but did it two different times and it was just hilarious. I mean, in one case we had a road that went, had a big tight bend in it. And uh, I had a, a, a ranch hand going up. I had that one. I had help that day and he went ahead cause we had to saw some logs out of the way. And then he went ahead and he got about maybe a hundred yards ahead and it was getting to where he needed to open the gate into the next pasture. And the first part of this is they got on a ridge and they looked and he was behind them at that point. He says, gosh, I cannot believe they all looked at each other like we've never done this before. And then you could see one look at the other. And then there's always two or three of my buddies, my old cows that would say, okay, let's trust him again. And they got halfway there and they literally ran slid off a bike and up the other side in order to get there to, to be. And then it's something when they saw the grass and Butch said, man, he said, I thought they were going to run over me. They ran around you went jumped down the bike and up the other side. And then, then they, They'll actually turn and look at you when you go in there, and it's just like they're thanking you. Anyway, enough That's of that. Hilarious. Well, Steve, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I will take your advice on one thing. There you go. It's not a cowboy hat, but it covers my ears and my nose. Does the same thing. So I'm looking good over here. I'm going to go to the post office and see how my day goes. <laughs> That's awesome. That is Always awesome. a pleasure, Steve. Tom, right. thank you, guys. Thank Hope you everybody guys. has a wonderful day. Awesome. Thanks, Doug and Tom. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Care. See you guys. All right, bye. Bye.